This is the Lesbian Historic Motif Podcast, brought to you by Heather Rose Jones. The show looks at lesbian and sapphic themes in history and literature, and historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past. We present research, interviews, news of the field, book listings, and original historical fiction for your enjoyment. For even more historic research, check out our blog, Welcome to On the Shelf for July 2023. Not much in the way of an introduction this month. I hope everyone had a chance to celebrate Pride Month in a satisfying way. I've been rather buried under the day job, but did make the time to get in two author interviews for this show. The garden has also been demanding my attention, with the cherry crop to get in, all the various berries turning ripe, and the beginnings of a massive crop of plums of several varieties. As predicted, the fruit trees are making good use of all the rain we got over the winter, though the unusually cool weather means that the tomatoes are very late to start ripening. This year it feels like California has flipped normal on its head, especially compared to the rest of the continent. July is going to see me at two more SFF conventions. I'll be sharing a table selling books at Bacon the weekend this episode comes out. Then later in the month, I'm off to Winnipeg, Canada for PEMICON, the North American Science Fiction Convention that may be held in years when Worldcon is on a different continent. I won't be going to Worldcon this year, breaking a several-year streak. I just wasn't feeling up to traveling to China, especially given some uncertainty over the convention logistics. So PEMICON will wrap up my convention schedule for the year. As usual, if you're at one of these events, I'd love for you to reach out and say hi. A fan of the show got up the courage to do that at Wiscon in May, and it meant the world to me. Speaking of things that mean the world to me, I received a note from one of our fiction series authors who said the boost of confidence she got from selling a story to the podcast inspired her to set to work on a full novel, which she's currently shopping around to agents. I'm delighted to have contributed in some small way to helping an author get started, and I hope that in the future I'll be able to announce that novel in the forthcoming books listings. For those of you who, like me, enjoy audiobooks, you might want to check out a collection of early LGBTQ short fiction compiled by the public domain crowdsourced audiobook site LibriVox. Because LibriVox only works with public domain material, these are all stories from no later than 1927. The collection includes stories of same-sex desire and transgender experience, though the queer themes are often implicit rather than explicit. But many of the authors represented here participated in same-sex relationships and wrote from their own experience. The collection is titled Out of the Closet and includes stories by familiar queer authors such as Walt Whitman and Sarah Orne Jewett, but also many less well-known authors. The items that I can determine to have sapphic themes include Kate Chopin's The Falling in Love of Fedora, Constance Fenimore Wilson's Philippa, Rose Terry's My Visitation, Alice Brown's There and Now, Mary E. Wilkins Freeman's Two Friends, Sarah Orne Jewett's Martha's Lady, Octave Thanet's My Lorelei, A Heidelberg Romance, and Sui Sin Farr's The Heart's Desire. There's a link to the collection in the show notes. I'm a major fan of LibriVox for audiobooks of classic works, though the volunteer nature of the narrator pool means that the quality can be variable. 
The blog is still on vacation with regard to reviewing new publications, and no nonfiction shopping this month either. So we'll go right on into the new and recent fiction releases, of which there is an abundance. I turned up some previously unnoticed books as far back as March, which is a bit odd because I set my search parameters to only show me things released in May or later. Amazon's search feature is badly broken at the moment and is paying little attention either to limits on pub date or to sorting titles by date order. I am very, very annoyed. Up first is what looks like a rather spicy, sapphic mashup of The Hunchback of Notre Dame with The Phantom of the Opera. R.L. Davenor gives us The Hells of Notre Dame, The Phantom of Notre Dame Number 1, from Nightmuse Press. The author notes that as the series continues, the central characters from this book expand to a broader and more diverse polyamorous circle of lovers, but the first book focuses on a sapphic romance. One night was all it took. I should have stayed away. I should have thrown away her scarf, banished Esmeralda from my mind, body, and soul, and never thought or spoke of her again. That would have been the best thing, the right thing. But our Lord works in mysterious ways, and before I knew it, the walls of Notre Dame became her prison as much as they are my sanctuary. And with temptation front and center, neither of us have the strength to resist. Our days become longing glances and coded whispers, our nights stolen kisses and caresses on borrowed time, because we both know the inescapable truth. Our love can only end as it began, in fire. But as each day passes, and the more I fall under her spell, eternal damnation seems a small price to pay. If Esmeralda is hell, I'll go willingly. Next, we have a Victorian Gothic horror story, with what the author describes as a softly sweet conclusion, just in case you were worried about where it was going. The book is Cat Mint's Moth by Laura Jean Mason. The cover copy seems to be following a new fashion for descriptive language that doesn't entirely target the usual meanings of the words that are used. But here's what it says. When the grieved prima ballerina Catmint is presumed drowned, but is rescued while drifting in the drowning boughs overlooked by the cliffside convalescent home by the practitioner Moth, a handsome young lady of similar years who dresses in masculine clothing to present male for her profession, who is surgically skilled with delusions of blossoming cadavers, and both of their curses interlace. During Catmint's recovery, Moth is watchful of her practicing under the marred cottonwood. Catmint confidently initiates devotion to blossom into physical intimacy, sharing in a softly secretive courtship until the opera house comes to collect. The bargain is struck for Moth to come with as Catmint's personal practitioner while pursuing surgical internship in the city, but is soon blackmailed into participating in the production as well. Moth is tormented by a ghastly imitation of Catmint, which troubles the underground tunnels of the operating rooms, while the prima ballerina performs in deathly rehearsals of the bloody ballet. In the grips of vengeance or utter madness, Moth is consumed, Catmint worthy of coveting despite ruin, until ultimately she uncurls what waits under the opera house. There has been an explosion of interest in Sherlock Holmes' reframings in the last decade, perhaps in part spurred on by the entire Holmes canon moving into the public domain. Meredith Rose takes that canon in an intriguing new direction in A Study in Garnet, The Ladies of Baker Street No. 1, from Coidwig Books. 
If all goes as planned, look for an interview with Meredith Rose sometime in the next couple months. January 29th, 1881. Afghanistan ruined her body, but London has broken her heart. Dr. Sean Watson longs to shed the male disguise she used to join the British Army. But when you look like a bloke, it's easier to amputate a man's leg on a battlefield than buy a dress in London. Undaunted, she heads to the Criterion Hotel to find help. But when a chance encounter with an old friend leads to meeting the mesmerizing Sherlin Holmes, Dr. Watson's plans are upended faster than you can say the game is afoot. Now, instead of going home to Wales, she's moving into 221B Baker Street with Miss Holmes, whose piercing deductions are as thrilling as they are unsettling. Life with the world's only consulting detective is powerful medicine, but as they hunt for whoever is murdering cab drivers across London, Watson fears her growing affection for Holmes might injure her more deeply than any bullet. As Holmes's obsession with the case pushes Watson into risks she swore never to take again, she must choose whatever respectability a woman doctor can earn, or Sherlin Holmes. Both is not an option. When their quest for justice lands them in trouble with the law, Watson fears she has survived one war, only to fall in a different kind of battle, one that may destroy what's left of her heart. Our next offering is a historic fantasy with a somewhat vaguely medieval setting, A Field of Foxglove, Lavender and Foxglove No. 1, by Hilary Rose Berwick. Prioress Emile d'Etoile loves her world of service and sung prayers, of community and opus dei, and of secrets both magical and intimate. When a bedraggled woman stumbles into Emilot's church and is accused of murdering her master, Emilot vows to save her. The accused, Isabeau, is a dedicated diplomat, stolen as a child and forced to serve the local lord with her magical ability to persuade others. Aware she is falling in love, yet unsure if she trusts her new friend, Emilot must discover who really killed Isabeau's master, before the new lord reclaims his diplomat and Emilot loses her chance for love. The sapphic content of Boadicea Bowed Not Broken by Jana Williams is vaguely hinted at in the cover copy, but the subject tags suggest it more clearly. Boadicea, warrior, mother, and fully trained druid who readily admits her greatest teacher was the young slave woman she rescues when they were only 18. Tasked with a covert mission from her druid master, Boadicea sets out on her first mission and immediately encounters trouble in the guise of a hapless slave girl about to be beaten. Boadicea grudgingly intervenes, never suspecting the far-reaching implications for her mission or her life. I'm not quite sure about including this next title because it claims that it's part two, and I can't find hide or hair of a part one. Furthermore, we seem to be very much coming in at the middle of this story. But for what it's worth, here's North Woman, part two, by M. Jeffrey. Saxon woman, Wolfrune, finds herself mixed into a new love triangle when Eric's ex-wife, Lucia, and Reina's ex-lover, Astrid, return from a long voyage. Finding ways to cope with the new romantic entanglements in her life and preparing for the battle with her ex-husband, Harold, in Saxon England, she befriends Cusay, a Spanish man who was brought to Lisbon, a slave and now a free man struggling to find his own place in the world. Before her return to England, she must face one last enemy and prove to herself that she can withstand the upcoming battle. 
Upon her return to England, she learns Harold has grown more sadistic and cruel, and fears that the gods have placed too much of a burden on her. Finding her old friend Tate, she gathers the courage to see her demons fall. If the idea of a Regency romance crossed with a candy store rom-com with a gender-crossing love interest and a fake dating plot tickles your fancy, Sweet Nothings and Other Confections by Sula Sullivan may have been written exactly with you in mind. Lucille Waters, a spunky but anxious aspiring artist, finds herself caught in a conundrum. Her parents want her to marry or become a governess. In order to avoid either fate, she needs a solution and quickly. On a whim, she lies and tells her parents she is engaged to the reclusive Lord Fondant. When her mother calls her bluff, Lucille is forced to create an elaborate scheme that will hold up against the scrutiny of her parents. The only problem? It involves convincing Lord Fondant to pretend to be her fiancé. Unbeknownst to Lucille and the rest of the tome, Lord Fondant isn't Lord Fondant at all. She's the newly minted Lady Fiona Fondant, Fiona is a renowned confectioner whose delectable creations have captured the hearts of the tome. Despite Fiona's success and wealth, she's struggling to navigate her new role at the helm of the family business. It's a lonely, physically demanding job that only exacerbates the chronic illness she must manage day in and day out. Together, they agree to go through with Lucille's charade that challenges both their hearts and expectations. As their friendship deepens, Lucille and Fiona find themselves entangled in a world of make-believe. The line between fantasy and reality begins to blur, and an undeniably sweet chemistry simmers beneath the surface. But is their newfound friendship a recipe for disaster? Anne's Angel, School of Enlightenment, short story, by Maggie Sims, is the newest installment in a, the growing body of short sapphic romance spun off of a primarily heterosexual historic romance novel series. I can't tell whether you need to have read the main series to follow the action in this short story. December, 1812, London. Two courtesans looking to get out of the game. Anne Dockery wants this Christmas to be her last as a courtesan, but learning that her latest investment did not return the expected funds crushes her, especially since her dearest friend Mary Hale has enough saved to quit the life and leave London. But when only days before Christmas, Mary is hurt at the hands of her so-called benefactor, Anne must care for her. Touching Mary is its own sweet agony, torturing Anne with fantasies of what might be. If only Anne can summon the courage to confess she wants more than friendship with Mary, before it's too late. A warm bath, a compassionate touch, and an unexpected yet longed-for taste of pleasure might inspire the Christmas gift that offers happiness to both. If this next title hadn't specifically indicated a sapphic romance in the publicity, I'd likely have put it in the Other Books of Interest section, along with several other titles that have only hints and coy suggestions in the cover copy. Bunny by Annie Moon looks like it may also need some content warnings for experiences that the cover copy is equally coy about spelling out. In the enchanting world of Edwardian England, where innocence and secrets intertwine, young Mary embarks on a poignant journey that will shape her understanding of love, devotion. Bunny is a deeply moving YA novel that unfolds through the bittersweet words of a dying woman, lovingly crafted for her daughter's eyes to discover. Set against the backdrop of a bygone era, Bunny transports readers to a time of lavish gardens, grand estates, and hidden desires. 
Mary's idyllic youth is forever transformed when Bunny, a mysterious and troubled young woman, enters her life one fateful summer. Placed under the care of Mary's father's best friend, Rudy, Bunny's fragile state hints at a harrowing past, one marred by abuse and suffering, and something tells Mary that the present is not much better. Driven by a blossoming affection and compassion for Bunny, Mary becomes her unwavering guardian. As their bond deepens amidst the turmoil of Edwardian country society, tragedy strikes when Bunny is coerced into taking a step with Rudy that she never thought possible. United by their shared experiences, Bunny and Mary find solace in a humble garden cottage, forging a sanctuary away from the cruelties of the world. However, fate has more challenges in store for the young women. Rudy whisks Bunny away on a journey abroad, leaving Mary behind. When Bunny returns, a changed and haunted figure, the outbreak of World War I casts an ominous shadow over their lives. Working together in a convalescence home within the Grand House, they face the harsh realities of war, only to uncover Bunny's hidden secret, one which will change their lives forever. Anne Apteker is starting a new mystery series with A Crime of Secrets, Donner and Longstreet Mystery Number 1, from Bywater Books. New York City, 1899, a city on the cusp of a new century, a city growing taller, faster, a city of new inventions, new ideas, and old dangers on its shadowy streets where crime, misery, and murder lurk. When Pauline Godfrey, a young woman embodying the coming modern age, is viciously murdered, her throat cut, private inquiry agents Finola Finn Donner and Deborah Longstreet must navigate a world of violence and passion, lust and betrayal, where duty is twisted into bitter obedience and love is soiled. Finn, a tough survivor of the dockside slums, and her beloved companion, the elegant intellectual socialite Devorah, probe deep into the festering secrets of a family, the rot and corruption of the police department, and the sinister world of the city's thieves, whores, and thugs to find the killer. Another new series, based on the inclusion of a series name and number, is Devil's Slide, Speakeasy Number 1, by Stacy Lynn Miller from Bella Books. High school best friends Rose and Dax each have a secret. They like the other in a way they shouldn't in 1920s Prohibition-era California. After sharing a first kiss, they're forced apart, each sent to a different city to account for their sin. Rose lands in the coastal tourist city of Half Moon Bay in virtual servitude, working for a distant cousin for pennies. Dax has an idyllic existence in San Francisco, living with her married sister. Then the fates change. Rose escapes her miserable circumstance and lives a full life after landing a job as a lounge singer at an underground speakeasy. Dax wears out her welcome with her brother-in-law, and she and her sister end up tending to inherited property, a restaurant in Half Moon Bay. After nine years, Dax and Rose cross paths again. But is it too late for them? Lovers and past loves, greedy businessmen, whiskey, and the quest for a quick buck make it nearly impossible to pick things up where they left off. Will the lives they've led keep them apart, or will Dax and Rose defy the odds and find a way to be together? Her Forgotten Promise, by Corin Burnside, from HQ Digital, is a cross-time story uncovering a past romance through contemporary research. A wartime secret. A journey to uncover the truth. After an accident leaves Claire's Aunt Margaret feeling frail, Claire is more concerned for her than ever. Margaret has started getting mixed up between the past and present, and keeps asking after someone called Agnes. 
When Claire asks her aunt about Agnes, she learns that the two lived together during the war while working as WAAFs. They were best friends until Agnes started acting strangely, suddenly becoming secretive and distant. Then, one morning, Agnes had gone and never returned home, leaving Margaret distraught. Keen to reconnect with her aunt, Claire promises to help discover what happened to Agnes. But apart from an old photograph of the two girls, Agnes seems to have disappeared into thin air. With Margaret's memory rapidly fading, can Claire uncover Agnes's story before it's too late? The titles I've classified as Other Books of Interest this month are all due to significant uncertainty whether the keyword search that implies sapphic content is accurate. In each of these, although the titles turned up in my search, the listing categories aren't helpful, and the cover copy only hints at things like more in common than they knew, or the girl she has come to love, or romance and self-discovery. First up is The Dawn of Eternal Winter by Veronica Sizova from Life Rattle Press. St. Petersburg, 1905. Amid civil unrest, Margarita boards the train to Paris, escaping the claws of the Russian Empire's ruthless regime. At war with its neighbors, her homeland collapses, leaving millions of broken lives in its wake. Recounting her past to the woman who saved her, Rita takes the readers to the icy gates of Siberia, the colonnade of St. Isaac's Cathedral, and the stage of the Mariinsky Theater. A daring psychological thriller with romance, fantasy, and suspense, this text synthesizes past and present, beauty and terror, insurgents and war. Set in a fictionalized version of pre-revolutionary St. Petersburg, this tale of loss, grief, and betrayal becomes a window into the cold authoritarian world where love and freedom are against the law, but the fire of hope burns. This next is a very short story with a somewhat idiosyncratic prose style based on a look at the preview. Not Just Another to Bury by Cyan Videlis Nicoletti. What would you do if a perfect stranger leaves you with everything? A person you knew, saw, for a split second, bequeaths all mortal possessions. The year is 1349, and volunteer plague doctor Lucretia Mortar has been thrown just about anything. Usually the mind-numbing task of detailing the information of any and all of the new fallen to the great sickness. Till that day where a woman named Mary Payne reaches out to Mistress Mortar in her last moments of life, not letting go till her last breath. Minutes later, Lucretia is informed, Miss Mary left her with everything. Not Just Another to Bury is a story of self-discovery, devotion, and of two women who have more in common than either could have thought. The Mad Women of Paris by Jennifer Cody Epstein from Ballantine Books looks like it may be fairly dark, and as it's literary fiction rather than a romance, I wouldn't make assumptions about how things turn out. When Josephine arrives at the Saltpetriere, she is covered in blood and badly bruised. Suffering from near-complete amnesia, she is diagnosed with what the Paris papers are calling the epidemic of the age, hysteria. It is a disease so baffling and widespread that Dr. Jean-Martin Charcot, the asylum's famous director, devotes many of his popular public lectures to the malady. To Charcot's delight, Josephine also proves extraordinarily susceptible to hypnosis, the tool he uses to unlock hysteria's myriad and often sensational symptoms. 
Soon Charcot is regularly featuring Josephine on his stage, entrancing the young woman into fantastical acts and hallucinatory fits before enraptured audiences and eager newsmen, many of whom feature her on the paper's front pages. For Laurie, a lonely asylum attendant assigned to Josephine's care, Charcot's diagnosis seems a godsend. A former hysteric herself, she knows better than most that life in the Salpetriere's hysteria ward is far easier than its dreaded lunacy division, from which few inmates ever return. But as Josephine's fame as Charcot's star hysteric grows, her memory starts to return, and with it, images of a horrific crime she believes she's committed. Haunted by these visions and helplessly trapped in Charcot's hypnotic web, she starts spiraling into actual insanity. Desperate to save the girl she has grown to love, Laurie plots their escape from the Saltpetrier and its doctors. First, though, she must confirm whether Josephine is actually a madwoman soon to be consigned to the Saltpetrier's brutal lunacy ward, or a murderer destined for the guillotine. Both are dark possibilities, but not nearly as dark as what Laurie will unearth when she sets out to discover the truth. We finish with another novel based on actual historic events and situations, Women of the Post, by Joshunda Sanders from Park Row. This story concerns the all-black battalion of the Women's Army Corps, who found purpose, solidarity, and lifelong friendship in their mission of sorting over 100 million pieces of mail for the U.S. Army. 1944, New York City. Judy Washington is tired of working from dawn till dusk in the Bronx slave market, cleaning white women's houses and barely making a dime. Her husband is fighting overseas, so it's up to Judy and her mother to make enough money for rent and food. When the chance arises for Judy to join the Women's Army Corps, WAC, and the ability to bring home a steady paycheck, she jumps at the opportunity. Immediately upon arrival, Judy undergoes grueling military drills and inspections, led by 2nd Officer Charity Adams, one of the only black officers in the WAC. Judy becomes fast friends with the other women in her unit, Stacy, Bernadette, and Mary Elise, who only discovered she was black after joining the army. Under Charity Adams' direction, they are transferred to Birmingham, England, as part of the 6888th Central Postal Battalion, the only unit of black women to serve overseas in World War II. Here they must sort a backlog of over one million pieces of mail. The women work tirelessly, knowing that they're reuniting soldiers to their loved ones through the letters they write. However, their work becomes personal when Mary Alice discovers a backlogged letter addressed to Judy that will upend her personal life. Told through the alternating perspectives of Judy, Charity, and Mary Alice, Women of the Post is an unforgettable story of perseverance, female friendship, romance, and self-discovery. I also want to an update here. A book that was included in the April show as an April release under the title Her Female Husband evidently got changed at some point to a May release under the title The Poison Pen Pal and has a different buy link. I've included the new data in the show notes. I don't usually bother with corrections, and it's pretty common for me to discover I missed a change of publication date. But in this case, I was trying to figure out if this was a different book in the same series, confusingly also identified as Book One, and figured it was worth a note just in case someone tried to track it down. And what am I reading? After the abundance of May, I only finished two items in June. I found Elizabeth Norton's nonfiction work, The Hidden Lives of Tudor Women, as an audible free book and figured it would make good casual listening and deep background research on women's lives. 
I was a little disappointed that it implied it was focused on ordinary women's lives, but ended up centering largely around royalty and a few celebrities, with much less content on everyday lives sprinkled throughout. It took me a while to read through Sixpenny Octavo by Annick Trent, but it was worth it. This is a sweet, slow-paced romance set in the late 18th century, featuring working-class young women in London who get caught up in the political turmoil around dangerous publications. The historical grounding is excellent, and the interior lives of the central characters are very believable and true to the setting. This month, we have two, count them, two author guests on the show. First, we talk to Dee Holloway, whose novella Little Nothing comes out from Queen of Swords Press this month. I've been looking forward to the chance to talk to Dee Holloway about her new historic fantasy, Little Nothing, coming out this month from Queen of Swords Press, which I guess makes us publishing sisters in the interests of full disclosure. So welcome, Dee. Thank you, Heather. I'm happy to be here. Your book throws together a lot of intriguing elements. Why don't you give us a quick synopsis? Sure. So Little Nothing is set in rural southern Florida near the Everglades um, at the beginning of the American Civil War. It's inspired partly by the ballad The Highwayman, the poem by um, Alfred Noyes, with the narrator being Bess, um, the landlord's daughter or the innkeeper's daughter in this case. And uh, the hero of the story is um, the highwayman, uh, her girlfriend, Johnny. They've been raised at this inn that belongs to Bess's parents, and Johnny's function there is kind of as um, the hostler, essentially the best rider in town, the best tamer of all things on four hooves, including a strange sort of local horse that um, are called lime runners. And this is where the story sort of veers into the speculative, um, almost an alt-history kind of feel, because of course Florida does not have a carnivorous water horse. You could think of them kind of like Kelpies, um, Irish or Scottish Kelpies. So once Confederate forces find out about these vicious horses, they want to use them as weapons, essentially. And um, Johnny is bent on preventing this. And Bess is bent on keeping her safe. Because um, as a, a sought-after horse trainer, as well as a young Black woman, um, she's doubly at risk in the story. I am utterly fascinated by the Lime Runners, so I'd like to hear more about them, where you got the idea, and what what does the name come from? So Florida is kind of a weird place generally, um, and <laughs> weird enough already that it, uh, tweaking one or two of its details to be sort of supernaturally weird wasn't too difficult for me. Um, the Lime Runners came out of actually an obsession with Selkie stories, and at some point I had tried to write a, um, a story about a selkie of a Florida type that would be um, saltwater or brackish water. And after that, I started thinking more about what kinds of other creatures would live in swamps, marshes, um, the rivers that, um, that I grew up in, and places like the Everglades. So <laughs> yeah, that's where they came from initially, was um, another story entirely. And the name I, I came up with because I had envisioned them coming out of um, like the freshwater springs that are in the state of Florida, which are um, underneath the whole state, there's just a, a bed of limestone, essentially. Okay, I guess that's starting to make sense. And you, you used to live in Florida, you grew up there? Yes, my mother's family are from central Florida and I lived there and in Tampa until um, well into adulthood. So it's sounding like 
you know, Florida is a character in the story and it was part of essential part of your inspiration there. Yeah. So I have written a fair number of uh, what I call weird Florida stories that have either lime runners in them or other kind of um, weird characters or, or creatures in the landscape, just because um, it's the landscape that I'm most familiar with. And as a kid, I read stories that were, once I realized that there were stories set in the places that I'd grown up, I was like, why don't they teach me this in school? Like, why aren't we reading stories and, and history about the place that we actually live in instead of uh, different kinds of American history? Um, more like the scope of the country rather than regional history. And so I've always thought that it was deserving of literature the way that New York City is deserving of literature or London or um, ancient Greece. And Florida is, I have to say, a bit science fictional in itself. But compared to the rest of the continental U.S., well, okay, there, there are other places that are just as science fictional like Yellowstone. But, but it has that sense of being elsewhere. For sure. Um, and the, the number of, um, the amount of turnover the state sees makes it this interesting, you know, mix of people from all over the place, cultures from all over the place. It has both some of the oldest history in the country with St. Augustine being founded in the 1560s and native people living um, in the land for at least 200 years before that, as well as this brand new post-Disney history. And so those two things colliding create uh, an interesting kind of tension to me. So yours is not the first sapphic historical that I've encountered that was inspired in some way by the Highwaymen, uh, which, by the way, is a favorite poem of mine. I, I'm very fond of the musical version what do you think the appeal is of that particular story arc? Well, I mean, it has a very tragic ending, right? And I will say that I, I tweaked the ending a little bit um, because, but the the imagery of the poem is so striking to me. Like it has such beautiful language, so many incredible details. Um, I just have been captivated by the highwayman's jacket, particularly for a very long time. And um, in the story that the jacket is there, Johnny wears a jacket that's embroidered by Bess, um, who uses a kind of folkloric sort of thread magic that incorporates knots and braids and sewing to enact her will on the world. And um, I just, I love that jacket <laughs> so much. Where did the, the, the thread and knot magic come from? Is that part of a, an existing tradition you're drawing on? Well, in the story, Bess is taught it by Johnny's mother, Maria, who's a formerly enslaved woman. And there is some mention of um, like African braiding techniques that are used um, to uh, both in hair and then in cloth and thread as well. There are some instances in just fantasy fiction that really stuck with me of um, sewing magic, particularly the, the Circle of Magic books by Tamara Pierce have um, lots of threads, braiding, um, all kinds of things like that, stitching magic. So it, it, this is a sapphic, uh, it sounds like it's not a romance in the usual sense, but there is a romance within it. Uh, how important was that to you in the inspiration for the story? 
I had written romance before with with a, a you know a romance arc being specific the the framework for a romance novel or a romance short. Um, I wanted to try writing an established relationship, which is what this book is. Um, there are a couple at the beginning, there are a couple at the end, and so I do think of it as a love story, but not necessarily a romance. Oh. Um, it's about different ways of loving and the things that we love because I mean Johnny is just the consummate horse girl she goes to the ends of the earth for her horses and that becomes you know the most powerful thing about her is her love uh, and then of course Bess's love for her yeah I, I think magical horse girls in Florida should be your your elevator pitch tagline it's it's definitely uh whenever that come whenever I can bring it up online people are like oh say more. So it has been working so far. <laughs> so you've dropped hints about some of the other fiction you've written previously. What are the new projects you're working on that um, you might want to have people looking out for? I will have a short piece out uh, this month in June in a publication called Lamplit Underground. And that is also um, a a queer historical piece. Uh, it's a little darker, a little more gothic. It's a little bit about meeting the devil in the woods, um, that kind of thing. <laughs> and I'm hoping to start work on a, a long form project after that. Oh, good. So if people wanted to find you online or follow you on social media, where should they look? Sure, I'm on Twitter at underscore D Holloway. I've also got an Instagram account where I put up um, a lot of teasers, um, book-related stuff, um, giveaway info that might be of interest to folks. And I also use an Itch.io account um, for the stuff that I self-publish, short collections, longer romance pieces, zines, that kind of thing. Uh -huh. Well, I'll put links to those in the show notes. And thank you for coming on the show to talk about your new book. Thank you for having me, Heather. This month, we also talked to Lian Yu Tan, whose gothic horror novel, The Wicked and the Willing, just won a Lambda Literary Award. I invited author and friend of the podcast, Lian Yu Tan, on today to talk about her novel, The Wicked and the Willing, to celebrate the book winning a Lambda Literary Award in the category of speculative fiction. What a wonderful recognition of your writing. Thank you so much, Heather. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what The Wicked and Willing is about? Sure. So it takes the same premise as Alexis Henderson's House of Hunger, which is an impoverished uh, maidservant goes to serve a blood-drinking mistress. And in this case, Genchu, the maidservant, is a poor Chinese woman going into the house of a rich English white person. And along the way, she also meets a another servant of her mistress who happens to be a, a butch Chinese woman. And so the book is about her navigating the change in that social status, discovering, of course, that her employer is a vampire, as one does, and the fallout from that. <laughs> so The Wicked and the Willing crosses over several categories and genres. It's historical, it's gothic horror, it's sapphic, and it, it has a strong sense of place in the setting, which is Singapore in the late 1920s. How did you come to write in this setting? Yeah, well, um, so my identity is I was born in Malaysia um, to two Chinese parents. So I'm ethnically Chinese. And then we migrated to Australia when I was um, quite young. So 
Um, so that's my identity background. And Singapore used to be part of Malaysia. Um, and certainly at the time of this book was set, it was considered in conjunction with some Malaysian states to be part of the British colony, the Strait Settlements. So it sort of made sense for me to try to tie into my background a little. Although I do admit I had some hesitation going into it, um, you know, as an immigrant person, mostly Australian, it's hard to know where your place is and what you should be allowed to do. I know being allowed to do something is a bit of a fraught concept, but there's certainly a lot of fear, I think, about, among some diasporic writers like myself about where is your place and who has the right to tell certain types of stories. But ultimately, I really do love the setting because there's so much going on. You've got the British imperialism, which is such a good metaphor for vampirism, colonialism and vampirism just go together so nicely. And I'm kind of surprised that more people haven't done that before. Yes, that was a fascinating thing about uh, your book when I read the description was tying in those themes. And your work in general tends to fall in the general category of dark fantasy or horror. So what's the attraction of that for you as a writer? I love this trope, Death and the Maiden. Um, you're probably familiar with it from art. So it's often depicted as skeletal death um, juxtaposed with a young, vulnerable woman. And it's so beautiful to me that, you know, the decay and death versus young beauty. And obviously my first book was Hades and Persephone. So that's another aspect of that motif. And gothic horror is such an extra genre. It's so dramatic. There's such highs, there's such lows, there's romance, there's murder, you know, it's it's got all the things. And you can kind of pull out all the stops and go quite hard on the horror aspects, which to me is quite liberating. Yeah. I've been working up a show talking about sapphic gothic stories and trying to tie together sort of the lesbian themes in the traditional gothic genre in history and then gothic aspects of like early late 19th early 20th century lesbian fiction and then the ways that in lesbian fiction contemporarily that authors are using the gothic genre in a different way because there was there was a period where you know lesbian gothics were the lesbian as the monstrous. And mm. now I'm seeing more and more where the monstrous setting is an analog for you know homophobia and for the things and for uh, the things that women face in general. And and mm -hmm. I, I I haven't done this show yet, but I, I see a lot of fascination in you know tracing those threads. So so maybe I'll have to put off writing the show until after I've read your book and I can, you know, weave that in as well. Mm. Well, I love the um, focus on, in gothics, like the fear of the domestic sphere, the home becomes a scary place and it's meant to be, you know, your haven or your refuge. But in gothics, it's not. I find that really fascinating. Yes, the the the, the home and, and often the family as the, the antagonist. Mm. Yeah. 
So you chose an interesting structure for the ending of your book. Uh, it's sort of a, a choose your own resolution. So what was your purpose in taking that path or or rather those paths? Yeah, so um, I come, well, I used to be a gamer, especially um, role-playing games. So things like Life is Strange, Dragon Age, Mass Effect. And I found with that sort of interactive element that it really posts the onus on you as the player, as the reader, to be more um, involved with the choice, like to feel like you own the choice. And at the start, I knew this was going to be a love triangle. And it's a love triangle for a couple of reasons, but some of it is because when you're trapped between two cultures, um, as the protagonist is, it's sort of interesting to externalize those choices in the form of a person that you choose. So I knew that going into a love triangle and not providing people with an option is usually why people hate love triangles, because they feel like they don't get to pick the right person for them, for their experience reading. So I really just wanted to have that choice. And it does have some drawbacks. So the protagonist has to feel like she could equally make one of three different choices. And so that means she doesn't have as much perceived agency. You know, she feels like she's waffling a little. So it's not a structure I would choose for every book, but for this book, I felt quite strongly about it. Let's get back to the topic of, oh my goodness, you won a Lammy. <laughs> so I know it's one thing to make the shortlist for an award. And I think then you have to convince yourself it's an honor just to be shortlisted and try not to think too much about the next step because, you know, at that point, the book that wins can almost be a roll of the dice. You know, they're all equally worthy at that point. How did you feel when you found out that your book had won? Absolutely shocked because all of the other books on my category were traditionally published and my book is indie, it's self-published. I put a lot of effort into making it as good as a traditionally published book, but I still have that feeling that, you know, indies are not really looked in the on in the industry as being equivalent. So it was a huge shock, especially since this novel has very little reach by comparison. Um, it might never earn out its production costs. So I was very surprised and unprepared. <laughs> well, let's hope that the visibility that you get from the award will uh, help it earn its keep. <laughs> and are there any other projects you're working on currently um, that you'd like to get a chance to promote? I'm going back to my first love, which is secondary world fantasy, but you probably won't see anything from me for a little while. Um, I also finished proofing the audiobook of Captive in the Underworld. That's my first novel, which is a Hades and Persephone retelling. Um, that should be out on the 23rd of June, most places. Audible might be a bit later because Audible is weird like that. Okay. I'll see if I can find links to include in the show notes. Are there you have been reading lately that you'd like to recommend to the listeners? I've started reading Taste Like War, a memoir by Grace M. Cho. Um, Grace is a sociologist and she's Korean-American and 
it was really stunning to me, even though Grace is about 15 years older than I am. And obviously we grew up in completely separate ends of the world, but so many things about her childhood and her background I relate to so hard. It's um, it's a really beautiful memoir, very sad in some points, possibly triggering, but it's um, it's been fascinating. And I've learned so many some small details about the Korean War I never knew about before. If people wanted to follow you on social media or find out more about your work, where should they look? The best place to follow me is on my mailing list. So that's at leonutan forward slash subscribe. I am on social media in a couple places, mostly at leonutan, but um, please subscribe to my mailing list. That's the best way to keep up with my work. And you can always find my books and my content warnings at leonutan.com. Okay, I will put links to all of those in the show notes. And thank you so much with, for sharing your time with the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. Thank you so much, Heather. It's lovely to be here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon.